right, we're in. Screen Heat Miami, exciting one. Oh my gosh. Electric. Electric. The screen heat is on. That's right. We have an exciting week. There's so much going on. Fire. Fire at the box office. Fire. 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 Straight fire, Straight fire. (laughs) We're in. JL Martinez here with... Kevin Sharpley. Yes, sir. Screen Heat Miami has a brand new guest this week, which Kevin had the opportunity to interview. Mark McRae animation guru an animation ninja Mm. yes works for adult swim has a book best saturday of our lives cartoons on saturday animation through history he is one of the best those were the days though saturday morning cartoons that was our must-see tv as kids right I Definitely. Mean, your bowl of cereal, your favorite cartoons coming on. It's the foundation. It was the foundation. It was like, yeah, it was like the learning block. It was like, it felt, and it was that release after a long week of school, and you knew you didn't have to get up early, but early enough to watch those cartoons. And it just, yeah, it molded us. It was part of our culture. But you also know that, and if you read this book, you'll see that the cycles are the same, mm. you know? What's old is new again. Right. What's new harkens back to the past. And we could see this now in the big battle that is happening right before our eyes. History is changing. The streaming wars are here and they're not going away anytime soon. It's not a battle. It's a war. Yes. And and just kind of piggybacking off the idea of Saturday morning cartoons Uh, There's an interesting story in the New York Times. The great streaming space time warp is coming. The idea that the culture of watching TV is no longer what it was. It's not. It hasn't been for a while. Yes, but now it's almost like that's on overdrive. And and according to the New York Times, this could be the streaming wars could be the death blow to traditional TV watching. Yeah, but I think, you know, it ties into movie watching. It ties into, because it's content at the end of the day now. It's content watching. And I remember when the iPhone first came on the market and there was talks about watching content on your phone. Would anybody do it? No one's going to do it. And now the mobile phone is the most watched screen that there is. That's right. So the war is not just over TV. It's not just over movies. It's over eyeballs. It's over content. You know, who's going to gather those eyeballs in order to devour that content? And how much are you willing to spend to get those eyeballs? This is gone crazy. This is we're talking in the bees as in billones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, when you look at it, when you look at the landscape, there's like a new show, a a must-see show that comes out just about every week. And then you're clamoring, trying to find out, you know, which service is this going to be on? And how much is it going to cost? And how much is it going to cost? That's right. Yeah. And I think that that's the way it's going to ultimately be. You know, maybe people pay for this service for this month, devour that content, and then lose that for that month and gain another one. Or keep three for 
a month and lose another one, you know, a la carte. Yeah. But I also think that there's ways that, you know, these content providers are utilizing the data that they gather to keep you on the service. Sure. They to keep hook you hooked. You yeah, of course. And that's why, you know, Netflix's algorithm starts to go to work and starts to suggest similar titles that you may like because you watched XYZ thing. So, yeah, that's always uh, interesting how now technology is so invasive into our personal tastes and viewing habits and it's being used to feed the monster essentially yeah netflix is set up i remember when netflix turned to the point where when you're at the end of a show it doesn't even get to the credits before it's like okay in five seconds the next episode is going to stream yeah so they really did set up exactly what is happening now where content is more you know, you devour it all at the same time. Right. Yeah. But how much before it becomes too much? Yeah. Well, we did talk about, you know, it It may feel like every service throws, let's say it's an episodic and throws it all on at the same time. So you can devour it at the same time. But most of the services, most of the services don't do that. Right. For Amazon, you know, and look at this, the man in the high castle. It's going to come on its fourth season, its last season. We talked about it because one of our guests, uh, I think the fifth episode, um, he represents uh, the cinematographer and the set designer of Man in the High Castle. Yeah, Gonzalo Amat, who's been to our Miami Media and Film Market conference and gave an amazing masterclass a couple years ago using uh, Amazon's Man in the High Castle as sort of a... Uh, an example of how they converted a, a church in the Midwest into uh, a Nazi synagogue, which was impressive how they did that. Yeah. And but, it's one of my favorite shows. Yeah. So it is a show that I watch, you know, on a week to week basis and they release it on a week to week basis. Right. They don't put that out the entire episode, uh, the entire season. They at follow the, same yeah, time. The, the HBO model, essentially, where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, once the whole season's on BOD, you can watch it whenever you want, but you still kind of have to wait it out. And it's, I guess, it's first run, let's call it. Yeah. And Apple TV, which debuted just a few days ago, it's, they're following it, the same model. Interesting story on Apple TV, but first, of course, we have to thank our sponsors. Can't forget the sponsors. Can't forget the sponsors. We love our sponsors the Miami Media and Film Market, Kajik Multimedia, Cinevision, and Chemical. I said Woo! it. I said it right. He got it. Yeah. It's the cafecito. Yes. So now back to our good friends at Apple Plus TV. How much, I'm going to use a pun, how much of a bite did they take out of the Apple that is the streaming wars? This weekend, mixed, right? Mixed reviews. I think we're already starting to sense a little bit of consumer fatigue. Like, great shows, but how many more streaming services do I have to sign up for just to watch everything that's considered good? Yeah. I, I said this before. You know, when they first announced exactly how they were going to unroll Apple TV, you buy a new Apple product, you mm-hmm. get Apple TV for free. It was really cool to see that pop up on my iPhone 11 Pro that I get it for free, you know, $4.99 every month. But of course, <laughs> the iPhone 11 Pro is not the cheapest device in the world, but it was cool to see it pop up for free. So you could say the price was built into the price of your right. iPhone. They just charged you I can't advance. say. I do say. <laughs> but um, I haven't seen C yet. I'm going to see it over the weekend. Right. And then I'll report on it. When, I've seen the teaser. The teaser looks amazing. Right. But uh, I'll see it over the weekend and then I'll report on it on our, on our next uh, episode. That sounds like a plan. But... The offering wasn't robust. 
Right. And I think that that also has something to do with, you know, the separate reviews mm. about this unrolling. But there are other shows that are in the queue. Right. So I am still excited to see how they're going to unroll all of that. Oh, yeah. And then hot on the heels of that. And I think in about a week, Disney Plus is going to launch officially November yes. 12th. So we have to talk about that next week. That's going to take a chunk. That is going to be huge. That is really the Death Star now <laughs> as arrives <laughs> right. to the streaming wars. Yeah, absolutely. You could almost hear the Disney just don, don, don. <laughs> hey, I'm here, bitches. Time to scream, mother. And Netflix, yes. you thought you had it in the bag. <laughs> Not I'll so fast. show you a bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to be fascinating. It's really just going to put this whole thing on another level once once the, the Disney ship arrives. Do we have a price point on Disney Plus? I think it's around $6. Yeah. Th- think $5.99. At $5.99, it's oh. same as Apple TV, more or less, right? Yeah, give so, or take. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they, they're coming in low. They're coming in under, obviously, a Netflix, about half the cost of Netflix now. So it's... It's interesting, yeah, because, you know, I think also they're realizing that they're coming in with a much smaller library. I mean, Disney has a huge volume of content, but still smaller than what Netflix has been offering because that's just years of them building content and originals. So, you know, I think Disney and Apple have to build up to that. So they they don't feel like they can charge. Plus, it's an easier way, I think, to get more subscribers. You know, you start low and then, like Netflix over the years, depending on its popularity, you can incrementally... Yeah. yeah, and then Apple already has a built-in market. Yeah. Which is all of the Apple users. That's so right. the ecosystem is already there. It's already there. And and Disney has its various marketing arms and theme parks that they're going to be using. So it's going to be fantastic. But yeah. There is another war I wanted to talk about. And this is a war. A linear cable war. Oh, yes. Byron Allen. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with, with Byron. Well, Byron has built a multi-platform, multimedia conglomerate right. over the years. And one of his recent purchases is the Weather Channel for $300 million. For example, he just purchased 11 uh, television stations. And he has some of his networks already represented by some of the bigger cable entity. So you talk about DirecTV, Uverse, um, but he has wanted to have his offerings on Comcast and Comcast has blocked him every time. Hmm. Byron Allen partially has said it has to do with racism. And so he's battled it out in the courts and now it's on its way to the Supreme Court. And this is a $20 billion lawsuit. Yeah. That's a big deal. That's with a B. Yes. A big B. $20 billion lawsuit. So that ruling could potentially shake up the industry. Yeah. Maybe could Byron Allen will own Comcast. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely going to delay the launch of the Peacock streamer. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, it's amazing. Byron Allen got to start as a comedian. Right. Then talk show. And then he really, you know, cut his teeth directly into the business so you know it is something to see someone come up you know from in front of the camera to behind the camera and now you know to the stature and status that he is Mm. so you know this is this is another battle to really look at and see what's going to happen yeah yeah definitely the legal battles 
uh, it's going to play itself out in the courts. It's going to be fascinating to track that, and obviously we'll keep giving you guys updates on it. And uh, before we cut to our interview, we just wanted to touch a little bit on the box office. Box office tumultuous weekend at the box office uh, with the highly anticipated sequel to Terminator. Not doing so well. Not as highly anticipated, obviously. No. I just, for me, I just think from a visual, just looking at the trailers, like to see an older Arnold Schwarzenegger, like he's a, ter- he's a robot. Why is he old? Yeah, I think that that is one thing. And so that- you, you, even in the teaser, you would think there would be a feel for why he is older as a Terminator. Um, I think what they were banking on was the nostalgia. Right. But that also has to be measured and tethered with new audiences. Yeah, it doesn't always translate over. And yeah, and we, we've seen various iterations of, of the Terminator movies, obviously, but spinoffs, TV series. There's been all sorts of four ways into that IP into that franchise that, yeah, I think there might have been some fatigue or we're so distanced from the original that now maybe people are like, eh. But I think also there needs to be a balance. I mean, they do have some you know younger actors and actresses there in the teaser. Right. But I don't think that it was measured enough. Right. The marketing of it. And I think it was banking, again, really hard on that nostalgia. Yeah. So, yeah, but yeah, that's a Paramount release. Uh, but it was co-financed, actually, at Skydance, uh, which also put out Gemini Man, so they're not doing well with the last couple. And uh, actually, Disney put in about 30% oh. of the budget of yeah. the Terminator movie, I don't so. think it's going to hurt Disney too much. Right. It, yeah, it's there. That, yeah, that's a minor correction. For the, <laughs> especially when they got you know the potential for a $2 billion box office with the Star Wars movie yeah. coming out in December. So I think they'll be fine. But it's it, yeah, it's just interesting to see how these models are working and, and how, you know, maybe, and, and we're going to touch on it in the outro, how, how much do you want to continue to bank on these big fr- franchises? You know, uh, Scorsese has an amazing op-ed uh, that we're going to talk about in the outro, talking about you know, how Hollywood just continues to bank on these big franchise movies and how that's changing the industry, but not so much for the better. Yeah. And he does talk about Joker, which is, I think, one of the bright spots of the box office of the year. Yeah. It's going to hit the B. It's going to hit the B. And and interestingly enough, and something that we discovered recently, it's been uh, talked about in the trades, is that uh, for for several years Scorsese actually was considering to direct Joker yeah four years yeah about four years that he was toying with it going back and forth but he just felt I think in the end personally he just he couldn't connect with with this character becoming the comic book character I guess yeah you know, just, but it could have been his billion dollar box office right well you know he in lieu of that he gets to do the Irishman which you know we're never going to know the box office isn't important to Netflix, but, yeah. uh, you know, in the limited theatrical release it's going to get, it's going to be nowhere near that. So, but before we get to the jump, though, and I've been thinking about this. The back end on Joker, how much did Joaquin Phoenix take on the front end and what is he getting on the back end? Yeah, because it was I mean, we talked about and everyone, it you wasn't know, a huge Todd budget. Phillips. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a huge budget. A 60 million dollar production. So they may have had to have cut some deals with some of the above the line players. They had to cut some deals. There may be a windfall. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Enough points to get a $100 million windfall. He could start his own studio. He deserves it. Yeah, that was a brilliant performance. I mean, obviously, the performance really carried that movie. 
tremendously. Without and that performance, you got no movie. That was the movie. I mean, he was, I think he was in, they were saying, in pretty much every shot of the movie. Oh, really? If you think about it, yeah. I, I guess so, yeah. I, I guess maybe they're not in every shot, but yeah, he was he was such a central focus. 97.8% of the movie was all Joaquin. Yeah. yeah. So he carried that on his shoulders. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. His skinny, decrepit-looking shoulders in yeah. that movie. Yeah, he. All on him. He really did. Todd Phillips, of course. Yeah. On screen. It was, it was know, great yeah. directing. It was a great homage to the indie film. Cinematography. The it hit all the buttons. Cinematography, the costume, the sets, everything just felt so gritty. Yes. But let's hit these buttons. Yes. Let's dive into the world of animation. animation buttons. I love it. And we talked a lot about Disney. Yeah. That's where they started. That's going to be fun. Animation. That's so we're right. going to start with Mark McRae. Here you go. We'll be back. My name is Mark McRae. I work at Adult Swim. I am the Senior Programming Operations Manager, and I oversee Adult Swim's promo and packaging strategy for linear and nonlinear. That is a big title. Yes. It's a big title that, um, you know, sometimes I forget. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah it took because it took a little a while for you to get it out it's a lot oh my god it's a big chunk mm-hmm. yeah yeah me and my friends often joke about the title you know because it's just like i haven't really looked at your card is that on your card yeah it's on my card um which is, I, is it on the front and the back just the front <laughs> i managed to fit it on the front uh-huh yeah um so for such a long title mm-hmm. yes. i'm sure you had a journey getting there Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I started out on the kids' side of the business um, working at Boomerang. I was part of the team that helped launch the Boomerang team. Mm -hmm. However, before that, I used to have a newsletter called The Best Saturdays of Our Lives newsletter that went to Cartoon Network, Disney, Nickelodeon. Anybody who touched kids' content got a copy of my newsletter. Excuse me. And the newsletter talked about um, Saturday morning strategy, you know, the competition between the studios and the networks and um, the creative trends, the programming trends from the 60s through the 90s. Um, this newsletter was sent to people in the industry, but it also helped me break into the industry because people liked what they were reading. And I started getting, you know, little contract jobs, little freelance jobs here and there. Uh, DC Comics called and wanted me to participate in the online trivia show. There was a guy that worked at DC that was named Bob Rosakis, who was considered the DC answer man. And I would, I sent him a letter about Aquaman's boots. <laughs> That's a whole nother thing. So in the filmation cartoon, the first animated appearance of Aquaman, he's wearing boots. But in the comic book, he didn't wear boots, and I was wondering why did they put boots on Aquaman? And since he was the DC, since Bob Rosakis was the DC answer man, I figured that he would give me an answer. He ended up uh, sending me a letter telling me what his theories were, and from there we developed a, um, a working relationship. And he invited me to do his online trivia show, and he wanted me to submit questions that had Saturday morning. Um, tied in with DC Comics. Now, the internet isn't the internet 
that everyone knows of now, back in the day, the old school internet, you really couldn't look up this information readily. So it was a real great trivia for people to try to figure out. So one of the questions was, uh, and up until this time, uh, what was Superman's last animated appearance? And, you know, people were just stumped. And it was actually took place in the Brady Kids cartoon. Wow. Because the studio that did the Brady Kids cartoon also animated Superman and Aquaman and Batman, all the DC heroes from the 60s. They still had the contract for DC superheroes, and they stuck Superman in a Brady Kids episode. And um, the trivia part was the year. What year the you know Superman like? Right. And so a lot of people said Super Friends, but Super Friends came out in '73, the year later. You know, a whole year later. And this is something um, that I mentioned in my book, which is also called the best Saturdays of our lives. Uh, one of the things I talk about in my book is how the Superman and Wonder Woman episodes of the Brady Kids left. Um, impressed the network so much with great ratings that that's why they decided to bring the superhero shows back. The only thing that I thought kind of stunk about the whole deal was that the Brady Kids was a filmation production show and the Super Friends was Hanna-Barbera. So if you have a filmation show that's bringing in high rating for Superman and Wonder Woman, why not let that company do the spinoff or do the backdoor pilot of superheroes, but from what I understand, the filmation had lost the DC contract, and Hanna-Barbera uh, acquired it, and so, of course, it made <clears throat> perfectly good sense for Hanna-Barbera to now do the Super Friends, yeah. and uh, yeah, I kind of went around and around, but anyway, I was kind of telling you guys how I... Um, you know, started out in my career and how I got in the TV business. After that, after the DC um, experience, I got a letter, I got a phone call from Sid and Marty Croft Productions and I wrote a newsletter about HR Puff and stuff and they were impressed because I got the the episode count correct because they said they've written, they've read so many things about their shows and the episode count was incorrect and one of the executives named Joe King actually started to mentor me and teach me the cartoon business. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just wanted to, uh, you know, make a little sidebar note on as much as things change, they stay the same. And what I was thinking about when you told me about this filmation Hanna-Barbera kerfuffle. Right. I was thinking about Sony and Marvel and how Spider-Man started to appear at first in a lot of the Marvel films. Correct. And then Marvel produced the last two Spider-Man, actually last three Spider-Man films, and they were like incredible, and now that's done. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty unfortunate. Um, a lot of times, um, sometimes companies cannot see eye to eye and used to see it a lot in the kids business too because you know especially in the 80s you would have companies joining forces you know for co-productions yeah. it might be three different companies and they would join forces to make the the production of the animation as as good as as possible but there are times when um 
little disagreements happen. So I'll give you an example. There was this show that came out, I want to say late 80s, early 90s. It was called James Bond Jr. And it was done by the same production team that made, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And in the credits, and this is something I happened to catch because I was recording the show, in the credits, it had two executives from Deke Enterprises that supposedly had developed, helped develop James Bond Jr. And Deke Enterprises back in the day, their studio strategy was to get an established property and put it on the air. And so I ended up interviewing one of the executives from Deke Enterprises. And when I brought up James Bond Jr., that topic was off limits. Oh, wow. Wow. Right. Um, it also happened during another time, talking about filmation in Hanna-Barbera. Um, Josie and the Pussycats was supposed to be done by filmation, but Hanna-Barbera ended up doing it. And... Okay, so think about it. Your filmation, you've done the Archies, the number one Saturday morning show from 68. You introduce Sabrina the Teenage Witch. That show blows up even bigger than the Archie series from 1969. So if you're filmation, I would have assumed that I'm ready to go and get something else from that, you know, comic book company. And Josie was the next logical choice. And Filmation was developing a Josie property, and then somehow Hanna-Barbera started developing a Josie property. And Hanna-Barbera, you know, their show won the, the hearts and minds of the CBS programming team. The sucky part about it was, is that Filmation never knew that they were competing against Hanna-Barbera. They thought it was in the bag for them. And I think if they had known that another studio was also developing the same property, they probably would have went in a different direction. Right. You know? Um, But I liked what Hanna-Barbera did with Josie and the Pussycats because they took Josie in a completely different direction than the comic book series. And it was such a smart move. So think about it. You're Hanna-Barbera. And your competition has just produced the number two number. Actually, Formation had three number ones in a row. They had the New Adventures of Superman, the Superman Aquaman Hour that introduced a lot of the DC comic franchises to Saturday morning. And then they had the Archie show. And those and the Archie show was actually blew up ratings wise bigger than the superhero shows that. Archie actually sent the superheroes packing off a Saturday morning because it, it was a logical choice. Well, if this show is bringing in this type of ratings, obviously superhero shows are out mm-hmm. and these type of shows featuring teenagers and music are in. And um, but you're Hanna-Barbera and you've you know, you've produced Johnny Quest and the Flintstones and you've done Saturday morning. You've done primetime television. You have seven Oscars from your theatrical run and you're a well-respected animation company, and now all of a sudden this newcomer, Filmation, comes along, and they produce three hit shows in a row. And now it's looking like they're the number one studio, and you're not. You're looking, as a studio, from a business standpoint, you're looking a lot less relevant. Yeah. You know, and I feel like Josie and the Pussycats, to me, 
as a project reminded Hanna-Barbera that they were Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. You know, I got it. so from a creative standpoint, I, they put everything but the kitchen sink into that show. And they didn't want to duplicate what was going on at the other studios with similar characters. And they smartly brought in the supervillains. You know, they brought in Captain Nemo from mm. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. They brought in the Invisible Man from the Universal Monster movies. They brought in some James Bond knockoffs. I was watching uh, the James Bond movie the other day um, on Her Majesty's uh, Secret Service. Yeah. It's the one not with Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, Diana Rigg is in it. Uh, and a lot of the plot, I'm watching this and I'm like saying to myself, and I see Telly Savalas is the villain. Uh-huh. And I'm wow. like, oh my gosh. I said, this is a Josie episode. They, oh. Yeah. And so that's the thing. They, the writers at Hanna Barbera made Josie a action comedy show or comedy action show however you want to yeah however you want to put it and to me it was such a smart move it was such a smart creative move you know having the spies having the supervillains also brought in the boys right think about it a title like Josie and the Pussycats yeah boys aren't gonna watch that and if they do they're gonna watch it in secret yeah you know or not tell their friends yeah um so I think it was a good move to have boys as well as girls watching the show but again you had these two studios that were sort of you know kind of vying for the same property yeah and how things were done you know back in those days wasn't exactly um I don't know I'm trying to think of the right word without pissing anybody (laughs) off but I would have been a little bit fairer about who got the property, Mm -hmm. put it that way. I'll just leave it at that. I just think that if you are pitching a show, you should be given the knowledge that maybe somebody else is pitching something because then you might go in another direction or you might think about, okay, well, what could they be doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it was still an intellectual property game. Yes, 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 it was. But it didn't happen a lot in Saturday morning where you had... Either the companies were working together to produce something or you didn't have like you didn't have two companies fighting for a property. Mm-hmm. It just didn't happen a lot. Right. I got know. It. But sometimes it was also up to the network too. Sometimes the network would say, Well, you guys are doing this and you guys are doing that. So and that's how it went down sometimes too, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah. But getting back to Spider Man and Marvel, um, you know, unfortunately, it's one of those things, and I hope that they go back to the the bargaining table because <laughs> we'll I, see. I feel like I feel like Marvel or Sony rather needs Marvel. It was definitely a huge success. Yeah, it was a, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it changed the game and and to change it up, like why would you why would you want to do that as a company? But. I mean, neither you and I were not in the room, and so maybe it wasn't outrageous. Maybe whatever, maybe somebody was asking for a little too much. Yeah, maybe. You know, I'm thinking. Let's see how it all plays out. Let's see how it all plays out, because, you know, these kind of things go go on in the TV business all the time. I I mean, from a network standpoint, 
sometimes a network will give up a show because somebody wants too much money for you to air it. Mm-hmm. And it's like at the end of the day, it's not a good business move. Yeah. It might hurt you at the end or in the end, but you know, sometimes too much is too much. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So I think in the case of Spider Man and Sony and Disney, I think that's what happened. It's just like I mean, think about it. You know, we've made you pretty successful, and now we want a bigger piece of it. <laughs> it could be. It could be. It you could know? be. You know? I don't know if egos got involved. I don't know. No, like I said, we weren't there. But I would love to know. <laughs> yeah, me I think too. A lot of people would love to know. Like, <laughs> yeah. What really went down? Maybe we need to take the podcast over there. Right, right. Maybe we do. Maybe we do. <laughs> and get get a little inside right, info. Right, right. There's um I don't know, there's this old Hollywood story of uh Oh my gosh, what is the name of the movie? Um My Fair Lady, I think was the movie. And I think Julie Andrews played it mm-hmm. on Broadway. But she wasn't box office enough. And they brought in someone else to do the movie. Mm-hmm. And then that person felt bad for Julie Andrews. And they says, well, if you don't do it, we'll get somebody else. But Julie's not doing it either way. Wow. So, you know, the person who I'm, you know, ended up doing the movie. Because at the end of the day, it didn't matter. And... And, you know, Marvel and Sony and whatever, you know, could have been something like that. It's like, yeah. well, we don't care. We don't care that you helped us. We're done. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're going to see as it, and as it I, moves. And I just kind of wonder if that's going to translate into fans knowing that that relationship isn't there. Is Spider-Man going to fall back to... Well, fans know. I know. I know. You I know, all the that. chatter is... Right, right. So, so fans know, right? Mm -hmm. But is it going to make a difference in the box office? I feel like people are still going to go see a Spider-Man movie. Oh yeah, right. No matter who's producing it. Yeah. But I guess the test for Sony is going to be if if it has legs. If it has legs, and can you deliver what was previously delivered? Right. That's going to be the real test. It'd be a splash at first. Right. And it's kind of taking a gamble, too, because, okay, so if the movie does well, then that's that. Okay, see, we were right. We didn't need you guys. Uh If the movie doesn't do good, it's going to be some tough negotiations. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be some tough negotiations, so. It's going to roll. Right. Or, um... Yes, I'm not sure what's going to happen in that situation. But it's interesting, though. I mean, it's kind of interesting to watch. And that's the other thing that I think people need to realize. That all the entertainment news we get is at our fingertips. You know, like back in the day, you actually had to dig up. Oh, right, right. Trying to get this. I mean, you would read about it in a magazine. Definitely, you have to get all the magazines and the trades. And the Hollywood Reporter or something like that. But to be able to have that that information instantaneously. And then have everyone talking about it instantaneously. Yeah. I just think it's great. You know, one of the things that someone asked me at a at a panel one time, he says, well, you know, you wrote about old school Saturday morning. Would you want to go back to those days? And I'm like, are you kidding? I'm like, no, never. <laughs> I said, the fact that I could watch all of my screens when I want, anytime I want. I mean, I would have loved to have something like that as a kid because what I come to realize is that I missed... As much as I love TV, 
I missed a lot of it. <laughs> you know? Right. And, right. Um, because, you know, a lot of times you didn't have control of the television mm-hmm. or your parents were taking you out somewhere. You didn't have control of that. Or it was time to buy new school clothes on a Saturday morning. You didn't have any control <laughs> over that. And once you missed it, you freaking missed it. Right. That was it, you know? Yeah. And then some networks, you know, depending on what market you lived in, sometimes there were some episodes that they decided they're not going to repeat. Or they, one of the things I'm finding out a lot is that people who grew up in Georgia, uh, because I guess the stations here were not necessarily owned and operated by, you know, CBS, ABC, NBC, um, they just would preempt shows whenever they wanted. Oh. And some, you know, because we were talking about some Saturday morning show. There was a Saturday morning show called Mission Magic. And um, one of my coworkers said to me, that never aired down here. Oh, wow. And then somebody said, well, they caught it on the following year. So there used to be a Sunday morning schedule, too. So the shows that didn't make the final cut for Saturday morning ended up on Sunday. Oh, you right. You know, if you had some, because they still wanted some type of Sunday morning strategy, mm-hmm. you know. So it was usually two or three shows, you know. Um, on CBS, it was Tom and Jerry and... You know, like maybe the Batman cartoon or Tom and Jerry and the Aquaman cartoon. Mm-hmm. But Superman never aired on Sundays. They kept Superman on Saturday. Right. Superman was still bringing in the ratings. He was a big bank. Right, right. But it was, <laughs> so it was Superman, Aquaman hour. Superman stayed on Saturdays. Aquaman went to Sunday. The Poor Batman, Aquaman. Superman hour. The Batman, Superman hour. Batman went to Sundays and Superman stayed on Saturdays. But don't say poor Aquaman. That, that first Aquaman ser- series. Oh, no, no. I know, I know, I know. But, you know, he kind of got a bad rap, yeah, you know, know, moving forward. Yeah. But, 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 he, got, but he, got, he got his revenge now. Right, right. He got his revenge. <laughs> and, um, you know, what I like about the Aquaman movie is that it. I feel like they took a lot from that early first filmation Aquaman cartoon. Oh, really? Because... The scene, the big battle scene. Okay, first of all, that first Aquaman cartoon, he was a boss in that cartoon. He didn't take no crap. He flipped villains around. He talked to talk. He would yell at folks. He was all about the business. He was in charge. You knew he was Aquaman, king of the seven seas. Uh That's first of all. Second of all, there were always huge fish battles on that cartoon all the time. Yeah. Okay? And the and the in the Aquaman cart I mean an Aquaman movie with uh, Jason Momoa, there's a huge fish battle, and yeah. there's this giant volcanic vol- volcanic volcanic monster that's down there, and Aquaman fights a volcanic monster in the cartoon. Oh really? Yes, and it's one of my favorites. Oh it's wow! It's really good. It's really good, and so I don't know who on that Aquaman team was watching, but they were watching a lot from that film. So they did their research. They did their research, right, because that Filmation Aquaman cartoon is the only Aquaman cartoon where you see fighting actually happening. You mm-hmm. don't see that on, on the Super Friends. You'll see it in the Bruce Tim version, but, like, we're talking, you know, his first couple of shows. I mean, his first, you know, Su- Superman, Bat- I'm getting all my superheroes mixed up. Superman, Aquaman Hour, and then there was the Super Friends. So by the time the Super Friends came along, Superheroes were not allowed to throw any punches at all. Mm-hmm. But the cartoon that came out in 67, they were allowed to throw punches, all <laughs> kind of punches. And the fish were fighting, too. And it was great. That show, they're, they're like little seven-minute cartoons, but they have so much action, action pack, And it's written well. It was written by DC writers. 
DC Comics writers and, um, you know, uh, Aquaman is the boss on that show. It's like one of my favorite cartoons and it's decently animated as well. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? A lot of action. It's, it's, it's almost as if, because the year before that studio got like the lowest budget on Saturday morning and, the, and when Superman became a big hit, they got a nice budget for the following year. Mm-hmm. And those animation directors had something to prove to the industry. And I kind of feel like the first 15 episodes of that Aquaman series, they kind of blew through the budget. Uh, They just do some, there's some amazing animation and amazing great camera work. And camera work gives the illusion that there's more going on than there actually actually is. And the animation directors really did a great job, you know, giving you that illusion. And by the time they got to episode 16, and 17, there were recycled scenes all over the place. <laughs> right. You know, but from episodes 1 through 15, yeah. you know, there are recycled scenes, but not as many, you know. And yeah. so that kind of, and they were doing really cool things with the animation and the direction. So that kind of tells me that they kind of, that budget was, you know, it's like, oh boy, we kind of went a little too far <laughs> trying to show everyone what we can do animation-wise. Well, draw them in. Mm-hmm, right. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, because you watch episode 16 and 17, I mean, these are six, seven-minute cartoon lengths, and there's freaking recycled scenes everywhere. I'm like, what, what's going on? Yeah. Because you watch episode 15 through one going down on 1 through 15 you don't see a lot of that but there's a noticeable difference with those last two yeah and that happens sometimes like the pirates of uh the pirates of something water Mm, i can't think of it right now we'll insert it later we'll insert it later (laughs) the pirates of dark water that's what it's called all right hanna-barbera series uh what i loved about it it didn't have the hanna-barbera house style Like when I was when the show came out and I read the credits and I found it was a Hanna Barbera production, I was shocked because it didn't look like a Hanna Barbera production at all. It looked very high end animation. It just looked completely different. It didn't look like anything that Hanna Barbera would do. And episodes one through eight look pretty good animation wise. Episodes nine through 13, 14 look like Super Friends episodes. And I was like, okay, what happened? What happened to the animation? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, animation's a director's job or not necessarily the director. I guess the person in charge of production. Like showrunner? Yeah, yeah. He's the one that's determining the budgets. And I don't know. It's just something that I've noticed in animation a lot, especially old school animation. Like the Herculoids is another example. Mm -hmm. Episodes one through eight look like they're on the level of Johnny Quest. And then episodes 9 through 16, 17, the quality drops off a little bit, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look anything like those first eight episodes. And they run out of steam, maybe. Maybe run out of steam, <laughs> but, you know, maybe realizing at episode 8, hey, we're spending too much money. <laughs> right, burning through the budget. Down right. a little bit, you yeah. know, so, yeah. So, um, let's just go backwards. We're going to roll it back uh-huh. to your career, you mm-hmm. know, so we were... Taking right, this right. little track no, through the newsletter. No, no, no. Yeah. We want to get away. Uh-huh. You know, we, we want we want those uh, those little tangents. Right. Those passionate. Right. Passionate tangents. All but right. uh, so, yeah, the newsletter, and then you were establishing relationships. Right. So I was I was writing a newsletter. I was I was establishing relationships, and 
and people were, you know, reaching out to me and mentoring me. And that eventually led to me doing a project with Cartoon Network in 1996. It was a television pilot called This Week in Tunes. And it was like the Sunday political talk shows. You know, you have your Republican strategist and your Democratic strategist and, you know, who don't necessarily agree. And our debate, our debate was about cartoons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do we like, you know, the Smurfs, which Smurfs we think is better is, is Papa Smurf the best Smurf versus Jokey Smurf? Oh, wow. You know, yeah, that's, that's serious. A, <laughs> that's just an example. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what we talked about because we filmed a couple of episodes, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't know which one made the final. But anyway, that was my first project. And uh, Seth MacFarlane, who would go on to create Family Guy, was the host of uh, This Week in Tunes. And he was a really super nice person. And I always tell people, I wonder how my career would have been if I had kept in contact with Seth MacFarlane. But, you know, things worked out anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's ups and downs and ups and downs. Seth MacFarlane has had ups and downs and ups and downs. I'm sure. But, uh, okay, so from that point, mm-hmm. um, you did some work with Seth right. MacFarlane, his company. Well, well no, I, um, it wasn't his company. He was just hired as I was hired. Oh! Oh! To, wow! To just to shoot the pilot. Just to shoot the pilot. Wow! That's right. wow! And that's then, that's pretty you know, awesome. I think he was living in Connecticut at the time, or he went back to Connecticut, or New England, or maybe back to LA. I can't remember. And mm-hmm. I mean, everyone went their separate ways after the pilot was shot and didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it helped me establish relationships with people who worked at the network. And then um, in '97, no. Well, that was in 96. Actually, so we shot the pilot in June of 96, and then in November of 96, I actually moved down to Atlanta. And uh, I was encouraged to move down because some of the people I met said if I was in town, I probably can get more jobs. Plus, I really wanted to work at Cartoon Network anyway. <laughs> right. So put yourself in the place. Right. 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 Exactly. So I did that. Nothing happened. I was at the job from hell. Uh, for about a year and uh, ended up walking off of that job, which is probably the best decision. Uh, walking off. That's yeah. that's strong. Yes, it was time. <laughs> that is that's a separate podcast issue. Um, or, or, or you know we'll have a behind the scenes. Yeah, behind the scenes, you know, like crazy things that happen at work. But anyway, and three weeks later I had interviewed for a librarian job at Cartoon Network. And about three weeks later, um I got the job. Oh, wow. Know? So um, I was unemployed for three weeks, which wasn't terrible. And, um, you know, it was like a wonderful blessing and a wonderful opportunity. I proved myself in a library. I met a, uh, my manager was this lady named Mar- Marvita Fields, who was awesome. And she helped me get to the network. She goes, you know, I'm going to be an advocate for your career. I'm going to help you move up. And I think you're good at what you do. And, you know, and at the time, there weren't any, African-Americans working at the network in programming at all. And so that was definitely a goal. And um, uh, it happened, you know, the the boomerang job opened up. I interviewed for it. I I campaigned for it. And I was hired by a lovely lady named Dea Perez. 
And um, we kind of, Dea and I started out on a pretty good point because we're both New Yorkers and we're from the Bronx. And she actually knew some of the people I worked with um, during my first TV gig at Group W Cable, which is no longer exists. It's, I think it's uh, Time Warner Cable now. Um, so we, we connected really fast. And uh, she gave me the opportunity, and I've been in the TV biz ever since. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I'm still librarian and then Cartoon Network. You move from librarian mm-hmm. to another position. Right. So I moved from Cartoon Network librarian for Cartoon Network and Cartoon Network Latin America. They were my clients. And I moved from that position to um, a coordinator position at Boomerang. Right. So you've been through three different Right. So the the Boomerang job was kind of a hybrid job. It was Boomerang and Cartoon Network at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they brought me on for Boom, but, you know, Cartoon Network was paying the bills and they wanted me to, you know, um, contribute to whatever programming strategy was necessary for Cartoon Network. So Boomerang was kind of like my main job, but I would also kind of moonlight on the Cartoon Network side. And then both jobs kind of became 50% one or the other. Okay. Wow. You know, um, you know, uh, but Cartoon became the main concentration. And then at some point, I just did Boomerang by myself, mm-hmm. you know, because I could. Right. Um, I had the knowledge, I had the programming strategy, and I knew the shows intimately. Um, but Cartoon Network became the same way, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I watched everything on Cartoon Network, and I could order up a stunt really fast because I knew the shows. And so, like, watching everything on Cartoon Network helped you come up with ideas to get kids in the seats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't watch something and not know what it's about and then be inspired to come up with an idea. So, uh Coming up, you know, watching everything, um, you know, like one of the stunts that didn't get done was like Dexter's mad scientist stunt or something like that, Uh where we would have profiled all the experiments gone wrong on Dexter's lab, you Uh know, and there was a lot of them. (laughs) Right, right. Or maybe it's like, you know, DD, you know, tries to be a scientist and. You know, we could have listed all the episodes where Dee Dee interferes with Dexter's experiments and things go wrong. So, you know, so those are the kind of angles you're looking for. You mm-hmm. know, um, uh, sometimes you look for consistencies, mm-hmm. um, like Two Stupid Dogs. There was like this running gag that I still don't know what the gag was. I, I, I guess I should reach out to Donovan Cook, who created Two Stupid Dogs, to find out what the gag was. But there was there was this con on the cob joke in Two Stupid Dogs, like somebody would throw up that corn on the cob every episode somehow. <laughs> right. You know? And, just, and, and you waited for it. Yeah, no idea right. where it came from. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so, um, so you're there, you're Boomerang, your Cartoon Network. Was Adult Swim on the horizon? No, it was not <laughs> at all. The closest... I came to working at Adult Swim at that point. Cartoon Network used to schedule Adult Swim's schedule. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that was, but we did. And the person that was scheduling it got tired of scheduling it, and they decided that 
I should schedule some adult swim. Mm-hmm. Somehow I got out of it. I don't know. Maybe I gave someone the stink eye. I can't remember. <laughs> but I got out of it and I didn't do it. And uh-huh. then uh, they presented me with the opportunity to go work at Adult Swim because, you know, Adult Swim needed a dedicated person and they did not have a dedicated person and it's the number one adult network. But they had a dedicated person for Boomerang, which was not making nearly as much revenue or bringing in Mm -hmm. as much revenue as Adult Swim. So it kind of made sense to have a dedicated person for Adult Swim versus Boomerang. Adult Swim is a number one... Adult network. Adult network. Yes. Oh. Yeah, with, um, well... (laughs) 18 to 34s and 18 to 49s. Those are the demos. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. And with men, 1834, right. 1849. So yeah, that's those are the demos. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't have the ratings information in front of me. But <laughs> one number one, and those are our demos, and that's the story I'm sticking to. Okay, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll stay there. We'll, we'll stay there with that. Um, I want to go back, but it's also going forward, really, which is uh, your book. So your book is a lot about. Saturday you know morning. the retro of it mm-hmm. but you released it just a couple of years ago right so the book is a uh, so I took all those newsletters that helped get me into the industry that got me the jobs that got me to intern I mean the uh, the uh, mentors with people mentorships with people and I put them in a book and um, I wrote you know, commentary, because a lot of this stuff was written between 1992 and 1995. And I had been in the industry for about 15 years and so much had changed since I, since I wrote those original newsletters. And I gained so much more knowledge working in the industry since I wrote those original newsletters. And um, I would, you know, for example, there is, I always love using this as an example, the Power Rangers, I wrote about the Power Rangers. And in my original newsletter, I said the Power Rangers was Fox Kids' number one show. But in the commentary, in the chapter, um, I corrected myself because I found out that it was actually the X-Men series was the number one show. But Power Rangers at the time was getting all the heat and was exploding. And there was a live show that you can take your kids to see. And it was like a really big deal. Um, So in between writing the book and putting together the old newsletters, I found out that Fox Kids was the number one network. So I had to (laughs) insert that in and say, well, my 1992 self said this, but here's what was really (laughs) going on. But again, you know, even though I did a lot of the tracking in real time, Mm -hmm. there just wasn't a lot of information available. Then, right, that's right. You couldn't just go on the internet and, And, okay, you get that really quick. Right. Uh And um, I had the blessing of getting a Marvel book. One of my managers at Cartoon Network gave me a Marvel book. And that's where I read the information. Mm -hmm. So I knew when I was compiling my book, I had to somehow put that in there mm-hmm. you know well, here's what I found out in, in in between the 20 years and even even in that Marvel book Margaret Lesh who ran Fox Kids said that 
everyone thought that the Power Rangers was the number one show. So oh, I kind of wow. feel like I was justified. <laughs> yeah, well, there you, know you go. What I mean, right? And she goes, but the reality was it was the X Men series. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So because the Power Rangers was just, it was just such a huge, big phenomenon, and the fact that the Power Rangers is evergreen does not surprise me at all mm-hmm. uh-huh. you know yeah and so I wrote that at, you know I wrote a lot of these chapters and I did the commentary and it's competition between the studios and which I talked about earlier competition um, between the networks you know and programming trends and uh, Fred Silverman who was a programming um, VP at the networks he had a keen sense of what the public wanted to see and he would not take any pitches from certain animation studios if they never delivered a number one show. Mm-hmm. Okay, he did not look at them in any high regard at all. Okay, he bought exclusively and mainly from Filmation Productions and Hanna Barbera because those studios kept his networks number one. All right, and. Um, there were other studios out there because sometimes studios have certain relationships with the networks and it was easier for them to pitch to those networks like Rankin Bass who did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman um, the Jackson 5 cartoon they had a pretty good relationship with ABC and so some of their shows would end up there the Patty Freeling had seemed like they had an exclusive um, relationship with NBC mm-hmm. And Hanna-Barbera had a relationship with all the networks because they sold to everybody. I think in 1972, Hanna-Barbera sold a record nine different shows to all three networks. Wow. And that record has not been broken since. Wow. You know, I mean, I think someone like Aaron Spelling has come pretty close. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the guy that, the executives that produced the CW shows, um... Greg, can't think of his name, but you know they have a lot of shows on the air too, and a lot of deals going on. But we're talking like nine different shows for three different networks. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that that's you know? huge. And it was during that time that Hanna Barbera started shipping their workouts. And 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 then there weren't that many networks. Right, right. I mean, it was only the three. Three, yeah, it was only the three. But I think that's still a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's you huge. Know? I mean, because nowadays you can spread it across right. networks. Right. Yeah. The only bad thing for them was that some of their shows were going up against their other shows. Well, their other shows. Right. <laughs> right. So it's one of their shows ancestral. Take, right. Exactly. Exactly. So that was the chaos. The cannibalizing their, their right. Own. You couldn't. Um, you couldn't control. You know. Yeah. It's like Drake. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, you're at number one. But now you're at number one. Now your number one is knocking off your number yeah. one, and you're yeah. That's kind of cool, though. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's the kind of problem you want to have. Mm-hmm. So, um, but what I really love about the book is it's it's an exciting read. Right. Yeah, it's an exciting read. Mm-hmm. So, um, certainly I recommend to our listeners. We'll put a link on the podcast. Uh, there's, so there's interviews with people that worked in the industry at the time, and they give their their point of view. Um, the there's a huge. Uh, 1990s extensive portion in the book that I reported on real time. I, you know, after in the beginning, I talked about the 60s and 70s and 80s a lot, but then I'm like, well, I'm living in the 90s 
why not start talking about what's actually happening in the industry right now? Because nobody cared or nobody was reporting on mm-hmm. it. So a lot of the 90s, um, towards the end of the book, you know, a lot of the information was recorded in real time, you know, when the schedules, because it kind of it kind of messed with my head a little bit as I was researching. So there was a really cool Spider-Man series that came out on Fox Kids in the 1990s. Um, I want to say 94, around 95. And it had 3D elements to it. It looked really cool. And when I looked up the date, I looked up the date on the internet. I looked up the date in the Marvel book that I had gotten. And the date that I had in my newsletter wasn't matching up. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I know I put this date down in real time. And what I completely forgot about was that Fox Kids showed a preview. So I had the preview date. Oh, right. And everybody else had the actual real no, premiere Right, date. that it came out, and right. that's why stuff wasn't jiving. But yeah. I had to kind of like, okay, go back 20 years and kind of figure <laughs> out what was going on because I couldn't yeah. find the information anywhere. Yeah. And so it was like little things like that that my book has that I think is important that people kind of know because that a, a, a preview date kind of gets lost mm-hmm. in the mix. Yeah. You know? Now, one of the other things I didn't put in the book, um, I was really upset when the X-Men series came out. Not in a bad way, but, you know, since I've been working in television for a long time, I kind of figured out what happened after the fact. So when the X-Men premiered, and here's something that is not in my book, but I'm going to tell you guys as an exclusive... When the X-Men series premiered on Fox Kids, as much as I love that show, they kept showing the same three episodes in the fall of 1992. And it pissed me off. I'm like, where are the rest of the episodes? (laughs) Why are you showing just these three? What is going on? And in my original newsletter that did not go in the book, I said, well, Fox must be having some production issues because where are the rest of these episodes? And then when 1993 hit, Episode four, five, six, seven, you know, all the rest came through. Mm-hmm. And I was like, finally, you know. Well, but, why that happened? Um, th- there was production issues. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah okay. You know? <laughs> right. But, um, and I actually, here's another thing that didn't go in the book either, but I talked to the guys. So the animation team that worked on the X-Men series ended up working on another show called Exo Squad, which is also in my book. And Exo Squad came from Universal Animation. And um, so a lot of that team left X-Men to go work on Exo Squad. And I ended up talking to one of the guys from the show. And he told me, he never confirmed that there were production issues, but he said that there was a lot of learning on that show during the first season. Right. And I kind of translate that to maybe there was some productions issues going on. You know what I mean? But he said the issues and mistakes that they made on the X-Men series benefited Exo Squad. Oh, yeah. That yeah. You got you got to learn so, from your mistakes. Right. Exactly. And you know, and this kind of brings it towards, you know, the last things that I wanted to touch on, which is what's interesting about the book is you really get a feel for the trends and the ebb and flow of the trends through decades and decades and and, and you can see a lot of the same trends now right, right you know even if these things happen before you can feel the, you can see some of those same trends so that's what's really interesting yeah. so this kind of compare and contrast between then and now right and you know it's funny you bring that up because i i had just mentioned this to someone 
today that television has a tendency to repeat itself. And I think a lot of people in the TV game don't understand what that means. Um, you know, if something is hot in the 1980s, it can come back and, you know, in the 2000s and be hot again. But the thing is, you have to be able to recognize what those trends are and, and the fact that they're, it might be time to do a reboot of something versus not doing it. You mm -hmm. know, like one of my, one, I wish that they would do a reboot of Land of the Giants because what really killed that show was the technology. There was none. And these guys had to build these giant sets every week. And, you know, a network has to make a decision, but production cost versus ratings. So if your ratings are just so-so, but your show is costing so much, mm -hmm. guess what? You're going to get canceled. And that still happens today. Mm -hmm. But I think with all the technology that we have, that would be that show would be easier to do. Yeah, man, we got to make it happen. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, so all the smart programmers that I admire, people like Fred Silverman, people like Margaret Lesh, people like Phyllis Tucker Vinson, um, those three seem to know, you know, the, you know, strike when the iron was hot. Yeah. And because of some of the decisions that they made, they kept their networks number one. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Dolores Morris. She was the one, she was the TV executive that worked at ABC that came up with um, Schoolhouse Rock. Mm. She was a former school teacher. And, you know, parents groups were putting pressure on the networks on Saturday morning. They need something educational, not just to watch cartoons, which I don't necessarily agree with because I feel like if you're going to school Monday through Friday, cartoons should be fun, you know. And anyway, not to go back, but um, Saturday, I mean, Schoolhouse Rock was awesome. Mm-hmm. It was really great. It was really great. Yeah, she made it fun. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she made it fun. So, and it was a smart decision. It was the right decision at the right time. And, you know, that's another thing. That's why diversity is 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 important. Because here you have someone that's a former school teacher that becomes a television executive. And she brings such an awesome educational element mm -hmm. to television. You know, I feel like if somebody had been working in television already, but didn't necessarily have the educational background, they never would have thought of Schoolhouse Rock. Right. But she automatically thought of it. And um, it was good to have someone that was diverse and African-American that kind of, you know, put a stamp on something and, and brought a really great idea that the network also supported. Yeah. Yeah, you know? that's a great caveat. Yeah. We're getting a lot of firsts mm -hmm. here on mm -hmm. Screen Heat Miami. Yeah. Yeah. And um, maybe we're the first podcast, I would think, mm -hmm. that note of Aquaman that you noticed. Right. I bet there's no podcast that I've heard that yet. No. Have haven't. you said that on any of your podcasts? No, I have not said it on any of my podcasts. We are a, we are first here at Screen Heat Miami. Right. You hear that, listeners? Right. I was going to post it on Facebook. I was going to say, you like that Aquaman? I'm glad you didn't. Well, We're the, first. Right. Check out the cartoon. Because. So our last things um, at the end of every episode, mm -hmm. 
we have two ways of offering up advice. Mm-hmm. So the traditional way, which is what kind of advice would you give someone coming into the industry? Mm-hmm. And then the second part of that is what advice would you give to your, did she say 15, 16, 17 year old self? Oh. <laughs> All right. Whenever you decided, you know, for sure you wanted to be in this industry. Okay. Well, the second question is definitely an easy one, but to answer the first question, the advice I would give people is the same advice that helped me get back in the industry. You got to email people. You got to write them for advice. You have to, you know, set up coffee with them to see them, um, to see what they can offer to you as advice. Because you need you need people in the industry to help you get in. Because if they don't have a job, they might have a friend that has a job. And television is, is one of those industries where you need to know people um, to help you get in. I mean, every now and then you do have people that get in that didn't know anybody, but it's kind of a rare occurrence <laughs> um, that happens. Uh, and um, I believe in mentoring because someone, you know, paid it forward for me. And so I like, you know, paying it forward for other people. Um, sometimes mentoring can be a little overwhelming because so many people in our industry just needs help, but I try not to turn anyone down. And, um, but like seek out as much information as you can because the job that I'm currently doing at Adult Swim is a job that I didn't even know existed. So you need to reach out and talk to people and find out what their background are and find out what skill sets are needed. And even if they don't have a job for you, that's just information for you, for research, for you to figure out what you want to do in the industry. Um, To answer your second question, what I would have told my 15, 16 year old self was to be patient when I got that first TV job and not be so anxious to leave and make money because that's what I ended up doing. And then I had the fight to get back in the TV industry. <laughs> so that's what I would have told myself to be patient. Things will get better. Um, and, uh, you know, hang in there and you're going to have a great TV career, you know, because. I kind of, I got in the industry early, left. I left the industry for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then I managed to get back in. I mean, it was a good time to come back in because there were 24-hour kid networks. And so that was like right up my alley. But to get back in, <laughs> oh my gosh, I felt like I had to go through the Olympics, you know? And I had to do every every category to get in. Right, right. So it wasn't easy. And that's what I would tell my younger self. You better stay where you are because you don't have any idea what you're going to be going through if you leave the industry. I have that patience. Right, have that patience. I think that's, I think that's great advice for anyone mm-hmm. in any career, mm-hmm. really. So, yeah. yeah. And um, our listeners, this was an action-packed interview. <laughs> you don't have to have any patience on this. Thank you very much, Mark. For this interview it was my pleasure my pleasure it was so good to be here thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast i'm really really um, happy to be able to come and express myself and to talk about cartoons you know something i like a lot <laughs> i would say you love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i love it okay we're back yes we are back from, well done we love journeys yes that was a journey anyone 
that is involved in animation, which is just about everyone, because, you know, animated films typically do well. Mm. So animation, that was a master class. Thank you, Mr. McRae. Yeah, that was exciting. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm excited to talk about other stuff. We had sort of put a pause on it, but we wanted to uh, talk a little bit again about uh, Scorsese and his his controversy now, which is his insistence that Marvel movies are not movies. Double down. Triple down. Triple down on that op-ed. Op-ed in the New York Times, basically where he explains his position on how Marvel or Marvel type movies are not really cinema, is what he's. It's cinema. Yeah, he's not saying movies per se. Right, they're not cinema. They're what did he call it? Global entertainment, audiovisuals, <laughs> worldwide audiovisual entertainment. <laughs> that makes me think of Gwyneth Paltrow when her and uh, the Cold Coldplay, uh, her husband from Gold, uh, Chris, I can't remember his name, but. Uh, when they divorced, yeah, she called it a um, Chris Martin, right? A mutual uncoupling. I mean, that's one way to put it. And we'll still be co-parenting, <laughs> even beyond the mutual uncoupling. Scorsese, even in his words, yeah, has to be cinematic. He is, but I, you know, I think what he's, and I can't speak. I can only speak to the articles. What I think he's referring to in terms of the cinematic experience is, you know, movies that are taking certain kinds of risks. And those risks aren't necessarily or those types of movies that he's referring to aren't necessarily, um, you know, making it to the screens. Right. Like they were before. Yeah, and, and it's because of the dominance of these franchise movies that really just uh, they're sucking all the air out of the other potential films that could have maybe been rolled out over time, given a little bit of life. And and it is true to a certain extent that, that these big Hollywood blockbuster movies, these superhero franchises, the Marvel Universe, the Star Wars Universe, like they just dominate in terms of the marketing and the number of screens that they get. And it's not leaving much room for anything else. That's what it boils down to, though, is screens. Yeah. These movies have to be seen. Right. They don't necessarily have to be seen in the theaters. But Scorsese did say he doesn't know any director that would not want their movie to be seen in theaters. Yeah. And so I think that that's also part and parcel to what he's talking about, which is the opportunity for a lot of these movies you know, some say art house movies, some mm-hmm. say indie movies to have their take on the screen. Right. Is not as readily available as it was before. Right. Because the screens are you know being taken by it's not just and, you know, I teach. So one thing that I teach my students is that you have to look at the top 10 films or even look at the top 20. But out of the top 10 films, seven of the top 10 films are comic, sci-fi, fantasy, or action-adventure, which is the Fast and the Furious. What we call the genre pictures. Yeah, the genre pictures. So, you know, you don't see the dramatic pictures in that top 10. Titanic is still holding on. You know, it's moved down, right. but you don't see the dramatic films. Not not even barely in the top 
20. Sure. And, you know, he does reference the rare sort of crossover. And I think Joker maybe falls into that category where, you know, at the end of the day, yes, you can still say it's part of the superhero lore, but it was very much a drama, psychological drama. Yeah. And now we're talking about a movie that's, you know, going to hit a billion dollars worldwide. Yeah. I just want to give some quotes or at least one quote from the Scorsese article. Cinema was about revelation, aesthetic, emotional and spiritual revelation. It was about characters, the complexity of people and their contradictory and sometimes paradoxical natures, the way they can hurt one another and love one another and suddenly come face to face with themselves. I think you can say for Scorsese's films, certainly, that fits the bill. Can you say that for a lot of these new films, the Marvel films, the DC films? Maybe. Maybe you can fit that square peg into a round hole. But for, by and <laughs> far away, those are products. They're essentially prefabricated products that have a certain dimension that you're not allowed to go. You know, there's been drama recently within the Star Wars universe. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about Phil Lord momentarily about Spider-Verse 2, but you know, him and his partner Chris Miller were thrown off of, of the solo, solo. movie yeah. because I think creatively they were veering too far away from from the mothership. Yeah, and we did talk last week about the creators of uh, Game of Thrones and how they were to move into the Star Wars universe and they had creative differences as well. So they right. were asked to um, part ways, I guess you could say, from what I understand. You know, they were asked to part ways. Um, Rogue One was one of my favorite Star Wars movies. It was quite different right, than any of the films, you yeah. know? So I think Gareth Edwards did a great job in holding on right. <laughs> a little with bit. dear life. A little bit, that's right, yes. because he also had uh, issues. But... You know, in terms of the cinematic experience that Scorsese is talking about, you know, these films are, you know, indelibly different. I did, you know, talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, we talked about that kind of off mic, but I, I felt that Guardians of the Galaxy was really creative. The first one was really creative and, and unique and different. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all in all, you know, there still are a lot of the same themes, um, a lot of the same methods and, um, you know, framework for right. a lot of these movies. So to be continued, let's see what's going to happen with the Irishman. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. And so much going on in the world. And uh, there's an interesting post, I believe, uh, over the weekend uh, recently, Will Smith up in Atlanta hanging out at the Tyler Perry Studios. Man, I want to be on that set. I would love to be on that In lot. that lot. In that studio, you know, my company, we just established, or well, not just established a presence, but since last October, um, there, outside of Atlanta and in, in Fairburn, where a lot of the studios are. Mm. You know, Pinewood uh, is in Peachtree City, which is right next to Fairburn. So I'm there just about every month since last October. And, you know, I'm taking a trip up at the end of the month. There you go. Let's see if the stars will align like they did for Will Smith. I got to get on that studio set. They're having so much fun. I know. Him and, and you got Martin Lawrence, Eddie Murphy on the lot. Bad Boys 4 coming to America. By Bad Boys 3 coming, coming to America 2. Coming to. Oh, coming to, to America. <laughs> They're having a blast. Yeah, and it seems like, yeah, everyone was having a good time. It's very loose. But, you know, these are comedians. You know, I think when comedians, when they're around other comedians, it just becomes, you know, 
fun. You got to look up that clip. Uh-huh. And also, they're doing the next presidential debate, the, the uh, next Democratic pre- presidential debate on in Tyler Perry Studios. At the studios. At the studios. Wow. Yeah. That, that is Hollywood South. <laughs> Man, studio's blowing up. Good for Tyler. We have to do a live Screen Heat Miami. Oh, yeah. From Tyler Perry's Ooh, studio. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's going to be interesting. Let's see how we pull that off. But, uh, but yes, we have uh, other, you know, talking about some of our homeboys, we had mentioned Phil Lord previously and got the green light, Spider-Verse 2. Man, the <laughs> Lord. The Lord. He is setting it down. Yes. Cuban-American kid from Miami is uh, is really I think firing on all cylinders and what's great about Spider-Verse is that you know we, we just had this whole discussion about animation that they're able to go back to this more classic way of animating films uh, mm-hmm. because as Phil Lord explains it you know he feels like the modern CGI method of animation started to feel just kind of very stale and one-dimensional yeah they created new techniques yeah patented new techniques for Spider-Verse for, and, you, and you could feel it yeah and you know certainly their storytelling over time has just evolved and it's really become you know just incredible yeah you know i've been following the career not just because you know they're 305 uh you know yeah down with the crew but just in general what careers yeah 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 no he's he's definitely you know, found a trajectory and a place within the industry, uh, along with his, his partner Chris Miller. That's just it's it's interesting because he is taking chances and he is working within the studio system, but he has allowed you know certain creative freedoms, you know, particularly with Sony to to take these chances and and coming in on a decent budget because again, Spider Verse was not an expensive animation; it was under a hundred million dollars, yeah. about ninety million dollars, I think, for the first one. You know, compared to the traditional Disney or Pixar animations that could be north of 150, 160 million dollars. It made a lot of money. Won an Oscar. Won the Best Picture last year for that Best Animation, and and let's see, you know, he's going to have another run now, so that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's another story about another Miami resident, Gregory Allen Howard. Yes, Harriet. Harriet, overperformed. Cinema A score. Right. 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Harriet, by any stretch of measure, is a smashing success. Yeah. Told on, I mean, it was a small budget. I think it was under $20 million. And so it's definitely going to make its money back. It'll make a profit. And, you know, yeah, good for, you know, it's it's timely story. It's historical. It's, you know, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen the trailers and it looks, looks really good. Yeah. I saw it over the weekend. It is really good. Gregory Allen Howard, writer. Yep. Also producer on it. There you go. We got to give it up. Yeah. And he was here at the MMFM twice. Right. Yeah. He did a couple of master classes on screenwriting and a, a conversation. It was a master class. Yeah. He did a master class and then a conversation with. That's right. That's yeah, right. So that we had a great conversation with uh, Gregory Allen Howard. Um, I spoke with him about his storied career. He also wrote one of my favorite movies, Remember the Titans. Mm-hmm. And then when he came, it was maybe three weeks after the death of Muhammad Ali. And Gregory Allen Howard wrote the foreword and an article in the biggest Muhammad Ali book of all time, a book by Tashin. Yeah. And that book literally is a big book. Literally a big book. Yeah. Maybe, like, by, you know, one foot by one foot like book. Almost the size of the coffee table itself. <laughs> yeah, like, it's a coffee. Just yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And um, I said one foot by one foot, three feet by three feet. Yeah. And um, 
you know, he just waxed poetic about his relationship with Muhammad Ali. He knew him personally, went many places with Muhammad Ali and, you know, really gave a lot of insight, not only about that, but his writing process. Um, I think he spoke in one of the master classes or, um, you know, even on the side about the seed and kernels of Harriet mm. and to see that actually happen. You know, it's yeah. it, it's certainly a movie that is befitting the stature of Harriet Tubman, mm-hmm. who was approved to be on the twenty dollar bill. So I'm looking forward to her actually being on the twenty dollar bill at some point. It would have been fun to use a Harriet twenty to pay for the movie to see the Harriet. <laughs> that would have been great. That'd be great for the gram. Yes, <laughs> yes. But um, you know, I'm really happy. This is our fourteenth. That's right. Screen Heat Miami. Big one four. And we're going to keep it rolling every week. Next week, we'll have an all new guest. It'll be a surprise, but we're going to have a lot of fun continuing to talk about the industry, the streaming wars, the evolution of content creation, whether it's cinema or worldwide audiovisual entertainment. The changing tides. The tides are rolling and it's it's going to be fascinating to continue to follow it. And I hope that you will continue to follow it with us. Thank you for following this journey. I'm JL Martinez with Kevin Sharpley. And this is the one, the only Screen Heat Miami. Boom.